Welcome to another day and a new year of the Brainwaves podcast. It is 2019 and officially the third year that this show has been in production. I can't even believe it. To kick off the year, we'll be discussing a typical patient you might have encountered on your stroke service or maybe in your outpatient neurology clinic. But there's more to just checking labs and starting an antithrombotic therapy for secondary stroke prevention. And the case we're discussing is not exactly a stroke patient either. It's the case of a young patient who has maybe more than one reason to be hypercoagulable. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. You'll hear more about her story in a minute. And by the end of the episode, you should have an idea as to how one might evaluate this kind of patient, what laboratory and other diagnostic tests might be useful, and when you might get these tests, and how to interpret them. Stay with us. mics are on right now. Yeah, they're recording. Okay. For this week's Teaching Through Clinical Cases episode, Dr. Christy Yuan joined me in the studio. <laughs> I'm Christy Yuan. And like me, did some of her training in Baltimore before coming to Philly. Well, I grew up around D.C. I went to Johns Hopkins for medical school. Then I kept moving west to Wash U and St. Louis for residency, kept moving west to UCSF for a stroke fellowship. And now I'm back on the East Coast uh, assistant professor at University of Pennsylvania. And on rounds one day, when I was her fellow on service, we had our own sort of unrelated case, a young patient who'd come in with a stroke and had a presumed hypercoagulable state. And Christy gave one of the best chalk talks I've heard on the subject. So I had to have her come in to do the same for the podcast. Oh, okay, okay. And we'll start off the show with my case. A 36-year-old previously healthy woman presented to the ER with a severe and progressive headache that was unrelieved by Tylenol. She checked into the triage desk while sitting in the waiting room, and she experiences a generalized tonic-clonic seizure that lasted about 30 seconds. She's rushed off to the resuscitation bay, where she's given 2 milligrams of IV lorazepam, although her seizure had already stopped and now she's lethargic. Her vitals are checked. She's a little hypertensive, 150s over 70s, heart rate 74, and has a normal sinus rhythm by EKG. She's taken for head CT, which shows a small amount of subarachnoid hemorrhage, And this is along the cortical convexity, and there's some associated hypoattenuation of the right paramedian frontal lobe. A CTA and a CTV are also performed. The CTA shows there's no proximal large vessel occlusion or vascular malformation, and a CT venogram shows a superior sagittal sinus thrombosis. So we'll get to the urgent treatment in a minute, but for now, Christy, let's talk about how this happened. Yeah, actually, um, first of all, kudos for getting the CTV. Because, you know, when someone's coming in with seizure and you're getting that head CT, you know, you might get CTA and and see there's nothing there. You see the subarachnoids, you might be initially concerned about aneurysm. But like you mentioned, there was that hypoattenuation in the paramedial frontal lobe, uh, which might be some edema. um, And so there's some suggestion there might be a venous clot, plus the presentation of seizures may be pretty common, maybe up to one third of uh, cerebral venous thrombosis presentations. So so I think it was very um, astute to get uh, CTV. W- when this patient comes to the ED, uh, I think about, is it provoked or unprovoked um, that she has this CVT? So all the provoking factors are what you traditionally think are hypercoagulable states. So I would ask about whether she's been immobile, is there any recent surgery, maybe sepsis, you know, has she been on hormonal supplementation? 
And unprovoked would be a lot of the uh, inherited from Ophelia's. Uh, and so towards that end, I would ask about family history, uh, whether she's had first degree relatives with uh, any clots in their legs and their lungs. So, you know, cerebral venous thrombosis is not a terribly common place to have clot. And so that makes us think maybe there's, you know, young person, perhaps that pushes us for thinking about inherited thrombophilias, but far more common for people to have, you know, acquired uh, thrombophilias. And so you want to ask about those provoking factors. So she's 34. And if she were older, I think that the, the provoking factors that you mentioned might change, might shift into uh, different types of factors. So how does age affect your risk stratification? Yeah, that's a great point. She's childbearing age. Uh, and so you want to do the pregnancy test. And the hypercrabbing state uh, continues for up to 12 weeks after pregnancy. And then as we shift to people over age 50, you want to ask about whether they're up to date on their cancer screenings, uh, since malignancy is up there for inducing hypercoagulal state. And so those are probably be the, you know, the main things applying to her age. Again, just to reiterate this, you can think of disorders of hypercoagulability as being inherited or acquired. Heritable conditions being things like factor V Leiden, prothrombin gene mutation, sickle cell, protein CRS deficiency, whereas the acquired causes of thrombophilia are always more common. And then you can further divide up these conditions based on the patient's age and gender. In younger women, estrogen-containing oral contraceptives are major culprits here. Pregnancy is also a big one. And the risk of thromboembolism remains high up to 12 weeks postpartum. Some meds should also be ruled out, other than just the hormonal contraceptives. Drugs like heparin products, which can result in HIT, and chemotherapeutics like tamoxifen and asparaginase, lenalidomide when used with corticosteroids for the treatment of multiple myeloma, and bevacizumab, that VEGF inhibitor that we've talked about a lot on the show when it comes to high-grade gliomas and metastatic cancers. In addition to drugs, we think about the antiphospholipid antibody syndrome in younger patients who have venous or arterial thromboembolism, or have recurrent miscarriages or other thromboembolic events. When it comes to your older patients, hypercoagulability and malignancy is something to worry about. Other rare causes of hypercoagulability, like trauma and sepsis with DIC, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, these should be in your differential as well, but they may not be near the top of the list. All right, so that's the hereditary and the acquired forms of thrombophilia. And you could further divide them into arterial and venous events. The factor V Leiden and prothrombin gene mutation, they don't really confer a lot of risk for arterial thromboembolism. And out of the most common thrombophilia is probably only antiphospholipid antibody syndrome increases risk for arterial thromboembolism. Um, there might be there's, slight evidence there's also some weaker evidence that protein S deficiency can cause arterial thromboses. And of course, in stroke, we see malignancy quite often in our elderly patients. But for the most part, since factor V Leiden and prothrombin gene mutations are so common, and because antiphospholipid antibody syndrome carries such a high risk of recurrent events, typically these are the conditions that we test for. But, you know, we commonly have a practice of just sending the entire thrombophilia panel or a large hypercoagulal state panel when someone comes in with arterial stroke, where we should probably be a little bit more prudent about what we send and focus on antiphospholipid antibodies. With all that in mind, let's get back to our patient. 
So as she awakens, we're going to get some of this history back from her. She's able to now tell you that nobody else in her family has had a problem with clotting at a young age. Her father did have a myocardial infarction in his 60s. He was a smoker. She herself has never been pregnant and doesn't think that she's pregnant, and she's not experienced any miscarriages. She's never had a venous thromboembolism, nor has she ever had any severe leg pain or cramping, severe chest pain or dyspnea, which are kind of questions that I always ask because some patients never present, especially if they're young. They kind of deny these symptoms. And she's had no prior stroke and no prior brain bleed. She drinks alcohol on social occasions, but denies any tobacco or illicit substances. Worth noting is that earlier that day, she'd taken a nine-hour flight from Paris, and that was the point in which the headache had begun. In the days preceding her flight, she had a mild diarrheal illness without any fevers or chills, and she says that she might have been a little bit dehydrated. Medication-wise, she says that she takes Tylenol for the headaches, and she takes a multivitamin and is on no oral contraceptives. But she uses a Nuva ring, and she's sexually active with her boyfriend. Dr. Yuan, so what do you make of this new information, and what other diagnostic tests might you start with? Well, it sounds like she has at least two provoking factors. Uh, one is that she's been immobile on this rather long flight, and then she's also on the Nuva ring, which is an estrogen-containing contraception. Yeah, so that's an interesting point. I think that when I was earlier in my training, we didn't think that the kind of localized estrogen-containing contraceptive methods didn't seem to carry that risk, but it seems that newer data or better data has disproven this fact. So, you know, I think uh, a lot of times it comes down to the doses of, of estrogen, some of the lower dosages, some people would say um, 20 or 30 micrograms might not confer as much risk as the higher doses. But I think some, you know, newer data would suggest that progesterone only or non-hormonal forms of contraception would still be a little bit safer, decreased risk of venous thromboembolism compared to any estrogen products. And these two risk factors, the antecedent flight with immobilization and maybe the Nuva ring and maybe a diarrheal illness could have predisposed her to this venous clotting event. Would you just call it what it is, you know, call a spade a spade or would, does she need more workup? You know, I think in the community, probably a lot of people would stop here and say that she has provoking factors. You would treat her with anticoagulation and do no further testing. But, you know, as we mentioned before, she did have an area of clot that's an unusual place for VTE. So, and some of the most unusual places would be cerebral venous thrombosis, uh, as well as splanchnic venous thrombolism. So if, if you do have clot in those two areas, we would look for, for especially first time uh, VTE, we would do sort of a first tier hypercoagulable state testing. And, you know, in this uh, in this approach, we would look for the most common causes of thrombophilia, both acquired and inherited. And so, number one, most common would be factor V Leiden, followed by antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, followed by prothrombin gene mutation. So, we would probably start with those labs. With the workup, she does get those tests. She also gets, you know, basic screening labs, a CBC and platelet count, and, and they're all normal. There's a normal metabolic panel. Her coag profile is also normal. She gets a urine pregnancy test, which you said is, you know, certainly high risk in a young woman who has a new thromboembolic event. That's negative. Her HIV and RPRS screening tests are non-reactive. She does get the factor V Leiden, the prothrombin gene mutation antiphospholipid antibody panel, which we should specify more clearly for the audience, but those are all sent. 
So when we say the antiphospholipid antibody panel, what are we kind of including in that catch-all? So this is the lupus anticoagulant, which has the strongest risk for thromboembolism, followed by beta-2 glycoprotein, IgM, and IgG, as well as cardiolipin, uh, IgM, and IgG. And sometimes you can have one being positive or the other being positive, or they can even fluctuate over time. You mentioned the lupus anticoagulant is the most important, but is it more important to have three being positive or two positive? What's the difference? You know, for someone to actually be diagnosed with uh, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, you have to have either an arterial or venous thrombolism plus at least one of these antibodies being quote-unquote positive. And so I would say that most definitions of the syndrome with state anticardiolipin or beta-2 glycoprotein positive would be in um, a level of 40 or above, just what they would consider over 95th percentile. And lupus anticoagulant is often confirmed with a dilute Russell Viper venom test. Having two of these antiphospholipids being positive uh, confers higher risk for thromboembolism compared to a single one, and then having triple positive is the most risky. The lupus anticoagulant um, out of these three uh, confers the greatest risk for obstetric problems, prothrombotic issues during pregnancy. And then when we talk about these antiphospholipids being positive, according to the diagnostic criteria for clinical syndrome, you would need to be positive consecutively twice when checked 12 weeks apart. To jump in here real quick, I'll say that many cases of the antiphospholipid syndrome are associated with some other underlying autoimmune condition, like lupus, meaning it's a secondary type of APLS. So testing for some of these other conditions could be considered if there are other manifestations of autoimmunity. But sometimes, APLS can be its own primary autoimmune condition. Or finding these antibodies in a patient's serum can be entirely unrelated to a systemic autoimmunity. um, Although antiphospholipids could be associated with autoimmune disorders, it can also be associated with post-transplant. Patients with certain infections. Renal disease. And you can even get false positive results by testing patients who are anticoagulated. So probably need to take those things into consideration when they're just mildly positive. Patients on heparin can obviously have a prolonged PTT or a dilute Russell Viper venom test, but lupus anticoagulant can also be abnormal in a patient who's on heparin or warfarin. So warfarin would affect nearly everything, especially the lupus anticoagulant. Or even any of the newer DOACs. With the exception of maybe the beta-2 glycoprotein and the anticardiolipin are not so much affected by DOACs, but certainly by warfarin and maybe less so by uh, heparin products which is why it's not recommended to test patients for APLS who are actively anticoagulated, like our patient who's now on Pradaxa. So dabigatran being a DOAC would affect a lot of the thrombophilia testing. So, Because these DOACs can affect your lupus anticoagulant results, which is why we send these tests, like the APLS panel, early on, before you even start anticoagulation. But down the road, when you think of your second tier tests, like antithrombin-3 or protein CNS deficiency, you won't want your patient to be on a DOAC either. Um, It would affect your APC resistance testing, your protein CNS activity, and then definitely your lupus anticoagulant and DRVBT results. Probably the only thing... And when it comes to APLS testing in particular, 
You may have heard of the revised Zipporah criteria. And then there's a Sydney classification system that's more updated, but... Both of which will mandate a positive antiphospholipid antibody, any of them, to be positive on two separate occasions in the setting of a thromboembolic or obstetrical event. But some experts have said that you can use these criteria more as a guide than as a rigid formula for diagnosing APLS. But the genetic test could be sent at any time. And then if this patient were to have a recurrent VTE, then I would think about the thrombophilia conditions that gives you the highest risk for recurrence. So this includes antiphospholipid antibody syndrome above all else. But then also with the additional thrombophilias, antithrombin-3 deficiency, as well as protein CNS deficiency. Uh, people have looked at the recurrence rate of VTE for factor V lidin prothrombin gene, and they're actually not that high. If you have them together, both um, prothrombin gene and factor V lidin, you have much greater risk, over tenfold risk of recurrence. But if you have just one of them, even homozygous, it's not nearly as high rate of recurrence as if you had protein CNS deficiency. So uh, I would probably check those three additional things if she had another VTE, because then that would direct our management, specifically the duration of her anticoagulation. So for this patient specifically, she did have the factor V Leiden. She did have the prothrombogene antiphospholipid testing. Just to remind the audience, they were all normal. Uh, we did repeat a CT venogram three months later, and it shows that the superior sagittal sinus thrombosis has improved, but it's not quite yet disappeared. Her headaches have completely abated, and she's been put on dabigatran. So how long might you continue anticoagulation? Yeah, so um, I believe the CHESS guidelines would say three to six months for anticoagulation of any first-time VTE. And so, you know, after at the three-month point, I think it's prudent to check her CT venogram or MRV uh, and see if she still has residual clot. And if she does, I would extend that for three more months of anticoagulation. And sometimes, you know, if there's after, um, you know, six months, there is still residual clot and she doesn't have a thrombophilia. At this point, she doesn't necessarily need to have the entire venous system recanalyzed. Um, that probably has less of a association with uh, recurrence. Like the failure for full recanalization has a lower association for recurrence, if any, compared to you know, antiphospholipid antibody syndrome or you know, other um, protein CNS deficiency, for example. So we're about to get to the end, but uh, before we wrap up, just let's pretend there's one twist in the plot. So say that her initial antiphospholipid antibodies come back positive, or on repeat testing, they do come back, and she switched from dabigatran or she switched from heparin to a warfarin. So why is it that we feel that we should treat patients with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome with the venous thromboembolism or arterial embolism? Why do we treat them with warfarin as opposed to DOAC? Because we have very little data um, saying that DOACs are better and warfarin has been out around forever. Actually, we keep on trying to force DOACs on patients. Um, they're much easier to take. You know, she's maybe she's a working woman, she's in childbearing age, you know, it's easier to take and that affects your compliance. And, you know, in fact, because there's been so much popularity in DOAC use, there's been a couple of trials comparing DOACs versus warfarin for patients with antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. One of the trials that's been 
publishes Traps, which is comparing rivaroxaban versus warfarin. And it was a small study and they had to stop early, in fact, because the rivaroxaban group had greater, a significantly greater thromboembolic rate compared to warfarin when they were followed for over a year. But this trial only included patients who were triple positive antiphospholipid antibodies, so lipocyte-anticoagulant, cardiolipin, and um, beta-2 glycoprotein. And that, of course, only makes up a small portion of follow-up patients with stroke. Um, and so it's a very specific group, and they're a very high-risk group, and sounds like DOACs are maybe not ready for effectively preventing that group from having recurrent VTE. However, there is still an upcoming trial uh, called ASTRO-APS, looking at apixaban versus warfarin. This is still an ongoing trial. So we're kind of just waiting to see if if that affects anything. I I, I guess it is... You know, it's one of those things about medicine that it can be disappointingly non-parsimonious, that there are no universal or simple solutions. Not everybody who has heart failure is treated with the same meds to reduce systemic vascular resistance. Age and race play a major role here. Not everyone with epilepsy is treated with levetiracetam, as you all know, and so on and so forth. So maybe, although we find that the DOACs work great for your run-of-the-mill venous thromboembolism, maybe they're not as good for every cause of a clotting event. We know, for instance, in valvular AFib, you should absolutely not use a DOAC. It's got to be warfarin. You know, the one point to make there, as you mentioned pregnancy, is that, you know, this woman who's 34, she now had a cerebrovenous thrombosis. If she were to want to get pregnant for actually anyone who's had VT in the past, there's generally guidelines or recommendations to be on antithrombotic during pregnancy when you're in a prothrombotic state to prevent recurrent VTE. And probably the safest antithrombotic to be on in pregnancy would be Lovenox. Not fun, but probably the right thing to do. And there are other more practical considerations as well, especially among women and especially among patients with an underlying hypercoagulable state. In females, for example, if you have a predisposition to clotting, you've got a family history of factor V Leiden, maybe you know that you've got it yourself, it's probably not the smartest thing to be on a hormonal contraceptive. And you should probably try to avoid those prothrombotic drugs that we mentioned at the beginning of the show. If you have essential thrombocythemia or nephrotic syndrome or some other kind of mild thrombophilia, maybe you should avoid those long flights. Or maybe just stretch your legs a few times while you're traveling a long distance. And obviously, you know, if you're a patient, you should always talk with your doctor about all of your medical conditions. So what would be your other take-home points, Dr. Yuan? Yeah, so built around this case, you know, I would say if someone comes in with a first-time VTE, you want to think about and test for the most common thrombophilias acquired or inherited. This is prothrombin gene mutation, factor V Leiden, and antiphospholipid antibodies. And if the antiphospholipid antibodies are positive once, you actually want to repeat it again uh, 12 weeks later to see that they're persistently positive before calling them antiphospholipid antibody syndrome. 
and that would warrant long-term uh, anticoagulation. You know, another point is that you want to send all of these tests before you start anticoagulating them, as most of our antithrombotics would affect the results of the tests, except for the genetic tests. And antithrombin-3 protein CNS deficiencies, you know, they have a greater risk of VTE recurrence when compared to factor violated. And then also, in addition to antiphospholipid antibodies, these conditions have the greatest risk for VTE recurrence. So if someone were to have recurrent VTE, especially unprovoked, you probably want to test for antithrombin-3 protein C and S deficiency. And then also for women, before they decide on oral contraceptives or hormonal contraception, especially including estrogen products, it would be a good idea to know about family history, whether there has been factor V blighted or some other thrombophilia. And if they're homozygous for those conditions, it may not be a good idea to be on estrogen-containing contraceptives because that gives you so much greater risk for BTE and also recurrence of BTE. And we've already talked a bit about the management of these patients, specifically the duration of anticoagulation based on the CHESS guidelines and the type of the anticoagulant. Basically, a DOAC is acceptable for most patients unless they have too high a risk of bleeding or they've got renal insufficiency or some other obvious contraindication or they've got APLS, in which case right now there's only evidence to support the use of warfarin. Uh, we're still waiting to see whether apixaban has similar efficacy for preventing recurrent events. Or if the patient has an underlying cancer, in which case you might prefer a low molecular weight heparin. And then for other thrombophilias, we're not really sure what is the best antithrombotic to use, although more and more because of the difficulty taking warfarin, we want to be able to use DOAX, but certainly we'll need more data to support the use of DOAX over warfarin for those situations. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for tuning into the Brainwaves podcast this week. I hope you learned a little bit from the show, and if you did, let us know by rating the program on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Brainwaves. If you like today's show, you might like some related episodes on cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, episode number 89, or episode 93, where we compare the indications and the efficacy of aspirin versus Plavix. Please follow us on Twitter at Brainwaves Audio for links to great articles and updates in neurology, or you can find us on Facebook. The Brainwaves Podcast is produced at a Studio 3 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. This week's program was produced by Christy Yuan and myself, Jim Siegler. Music was courtesy of Chris Zabriskie, How the Night Came, Dr. Turtle, and Swelling. Sound effects by Mike Koenig and Daniel Simeone. In the next couple of weeks, we've got some fantastic shows coming up, including clinical scenarios that always make my heart skip a beat, the neurologic complications of pregnancy, and then a two-part series on the infectious and non-infectious neurologic sequela of organ transplantation. So stay tuned for those programs. I'm Jim Siegler. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.